From VT Digger, I'm Mike Dougherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, hidden in plain sight. We're featuring two stories this week about Vermonters whose experiences were invisible to their communities for years at a time, and about the unusual paths our reporters took to find out what was going on beneath the surface. These pieces were recorded live on June 3rd at a virtual storytelling event called Local Lives. We organized this program with our friends at Back Pocket Media and our sponsor, Vermont Glove. The first piece you'll hear is by Katie Jickling. Katie typically reports on healthcare for VT Digger, but a Facebook message she received earlier this year set her on a different path. For the past five months, she's been reporting on abuse that took place at her own high school while she was a student, and why, in such a close-knit community, it was never brought to light. Here's Katie. I went to a really small high school. So small that my classmates joked, you had to be careful who you dated because you never knew. You might just be related to them. Randolph Union felt safe. As a teenager, it seemed a little too safe. We knew everyone and it was all just rather boring. We referred to Randolph Union both affectionately and derisively as RU High. Like many of my fellow students, I had known Rose Earl for years. I was friends with her older brother, and I remember in fourth grade, her dad taught my after-school chess club. My clearest image of her in high school was on the soccer field where she played sweeper, and she would just charge out toward an opponent like, like a torpedo with her blonde ponytail just streaming behind her. Sam McFetris was a year older than me, and I didn't know her well. But I remember admiring her artwork on the high school hallway walls. And I remember that she held herself with a certain sense of competence and grit. These are the things that come back to me now, almost 11 years later. Like probably most of you, I don't think about high school much, except starting in January when Rose reached out to me on Facebook. This is kind of a weird question, she said. But she wanted to talk about her principal, Dave Barnett. Mr. Barnett, as we called him, had arrived in 2007 when he was 39. He was cool for a principal. He gelled back his salt and pepper hair. And sometimes after school, he would lift weights in the weight room wearing a skin tight Under Armour tank top. By most accounts, he was good at his job. He brought this new energy and life, hiring new young teachers in this graying and kind of dingy school. But as Rose and then later Sam told me, there was another side to this story. And it was this darker, this more ominous side and version of events that would shape the lives of the young women and shape the trajectories of the school and the community and even of my life. Though none of us really realized it at the time. I spoke with Sam and Rose almost every week for the past five months, and the stories they told me followed the same pattern. Principal Barnett would uh, started befriending them uh, when they were in middle school, as early as middle school, and they would go to his office as they waited for 6 p.m. gymnastics practice. He would throw his feet up on the desk and they would chat for hours on end. He made gestures that seemed kind at the time, he, at one point, he burned Sam a CD and wrote the title track on the cover. You're the one. 
once Rose started struggling with her mental health, he wrote hallway passes for them. And so she could go and uh, visit and chat with him in his office. And then he started chatting with them on social media, sometimes late into the night. Later, slowly, he pursued them sexually and abused them both during high school and for years afterwards. Over the course of this reporting, this became a story about abuse in a small town and what we missed as a community. Understanding this meant looking back at this town that I've called home from when I was four until, until I left for college and beyond. It meant revisiting the high school version of myself, a straight-A student who played three sports and never really got in that much trouble. It meant challenging the teachers who I had seen as authority figures for years who had taught me and my three younger siblings and who we would probably run into at the grocery store or at the library where my mom worked. It meant asking these hard questions. Why were people so able to gossip about this abuse in the following court case, but when they were sitting on the bleachers before sports games, but so reluctant to discuss its implications in a deeper way. More than a dozen teachers and staff refused to talk to me about the case or ignoring my calls or just responding with a terse text message. At one point, I told a teacher that I had known for almost a decade, look, we're going to be publishing your name whether you like it or not. At one point, I showed up at the house of a former guidance counselor to get her to talk to me. And I found her sitting on the porch, holding this and sort of stroking the back of this very large chicken. She said she did not have anything to say. Her burly, tattooed husband stood behind her with his arms crossed. Ma'am, I have to ask you to leave the property. Ma'am. I have not gotten a high school report card for more than 11 years, but old hobbits die hard. Even now, these moments are disconcerting. I went back to visit Randolph uh, in May, and I was struck by the way that it looked exactly the same. Same worn brick building, and as I sat on the picnic table out in front of the school, I, I felt the same old pressure of the coolness that kids exuded as they left the school with their ripped jeans and dyed hair. I thought about that as I talked to Rose and Sam again and again over the months. Even now, I realize there is no easy way to ask a former classmate whether they had sex with their high school principal. And as I stumbled my way through the phone conversation as I paced around my kitchen, I thought about the pit in my stomach and I wondered, is this feeling what stopped teachers and administrators from asking that same hard question? Now, nearly 11, nearly 13 years after Dave Barnett started grooming and abusing his students, the associated court case is just now being resolved in court. If a judge agrees to the plea deal this summer, he'll likely face about 30 days in prison He'll have to register as a sex offender and pay Rose $15,000 to cover her mental health treatment costs. But now, even now, I found that the survivors and the school and the community are still struggling to understand the case and how we should talk about it. After the story ran on Sunday, I was just 
flooded with emails from readers, from former classmates, from the friends of my parents, from the people in my community who I had never met. They were asking the same questions. What had happened, they wondered. What didn't we understand? And honestly, who can we blame for this? A few days ago, I saw a woman who went to high school with me. She had known Rose and looked up to her. She told me that she would forever think differently about the principal's office at Randolph, about the high school concessions closet, about these places in the school that this abuse had occurred. How do I process this? She asked me. And she asked the same question that I had asked myself. Was I just naive? This young woman is working on getting her teacher certificate and she's already thinking about the conversations that she's gonna have with her teachers and with the community. Now's the time, she told me. After all, if we can't do it now, then when will we ever? Thank you. full story from Katie Jickling is called The Vice Principal, How a Small Vermont Town Overlooked the Abuse of Two Teens. You can find it at vtdigger.org. We'll be right back. Just a quick message from our underwriters. Community Health is Vermont's largest federally qualified health center. Affordable, accessible, quality primary health care at Community Health includes dental, pediatric, behavioral health, and pharmacy services. With practices in Rutland, Paulet, Shoreham, Brandon, and Castleton, new patients are always welcome. And centers are open seven days a week at Express Care in Rutland and Castleton. Community Health accepts Medicaid and offers sliding scale fees, making health care accessible to everyone. Community Health. Your health is our mission. Kevin O'Connor reports for VT Digger from Brattleboro. Like lots of Vermont towns, Brattleboro saw a wave of protests for racial justice last year after the murder of George Floyd, and an ongoing wave of activism about how the town's police force treats marginalized people. For Kevin, it was a family he first reported on 12 years ago that shed new light on the local conversation around racial justice. Here's Kevin. So this story starts in 2009. Uh, when Barack Obama was about to become the nation's first black president and my old high school's marching band was set to represent the state at his inaugural parade. There was no diversity when I graduated from Brattleboro Union High School in 1980. I was white. Everyone else was white. Our sports mascot here in Southern Vermont was the same colonel as the University of Mississippi, and no one thought anything of it. Then around the year 2000, I saw people wave Confederate flags at football games. And that's when, as a reporter who was covering the school's removal of the mascot, I learned that 16% of my once all-white alma mater is now made up of students of color. A classmate of mine, her name is Sherry Providence. She knows this firsthand. Like me, Sherry's white. After she graduated, she served in the Peace Corps in the Caribbean and met her husband. His name is Prav, he's black. And together they have three biracial sons, Rohan, Aaron, and Justin. Now back in 2009, 
when I realized that both Obama and Sherry's boys had a white mother and a black father, I asked if I could watch the inauguration at their house and write a story. So that January 20th, I sat with them in their living room. Everyone squeezed onto couches to report on their reaction. First came the invocation and everyone sat silent. Then came the swearing in and everyone sat silent. And then came the speech and everyone sat silent. I'm holding my blank notebook and all I can think of is I am in trouble. After a while though, I realized that the silence was really a sign of how historic Sherry's family considered Obama's inauguration to be. Finally came the benediction and I'm gonna read what the minister said. We ask you to help us work for that day when black will not be asked to get back, when brown can stick around, when yellow will be mellow, when the red man can get a head man, and when white will embrace what's right. That all those who do justice and love mercy say amen. That's when everyone in the room shouted amen, myself included, because I had at least one quote for my story. In my mind, in that moment, racism was over. Now we're gonna fast forward a year ago. George Floyd is killed by police. That week, I received an email from Sherry, my white classmate with a black husband, three biracial sons who I had not heard from since Obama's inauguration. Sherry had come across my Obama story and she read one of her quotes. Let me read what she said back in 2009. Quote, we have to teach our children of color to step above just a little bit and have a thicker skin. Neither Sherry or I thought anything of that quote when she said it 12 years ago. We hear it completely differently now. Sherry told me that her sons, Rohan, Aaron, and Justin, had graduated and were now working. They were home talking about George Floyd when they decided to tell their mother everything they hadn't told her since Obama's inauguration. Justin, for example, was 17 when police stopped his car. I'm going to read what Justin wrote on Facebook back when this happened. Quote, he pulls me out like a rag doll, slams me against the hood and cuffs as tight as he can. My whole body is shaking and my mind is racing and all I can say is, I'm scared, sir. Now only then did police realize that they had stopped the wrong car. But again, Sherry's only hearing about this last summer. She's thinking about George Floyd when she's asking her son, why didn't he say anything before? And this is Justin's reply, quote, in my mind, that's just how it is. That's when Sherry emailed me and said, I needed to write another story. So I returned to Sherry's house last summer to interview the family. This time we all stayed outside, we wore masks, we sat six feet apart, I remember that no one had said anything during Obama's inauguration, but this time everybody talked. Everybody talked for almost three hours. 
Rohan, Aaron, and Justin each told me about being stopped by police locally. I'm going to read a quote from Rohan. Quote, it's our normal. You see it in the news and think, oh, that happens far away or one time maybe two, but that's my life. We see ourselves as targets. We have to see ourselves as targets. As I'm listening, I'm realizing that every black man I've interviewed in Brattleboro in Wyndham County has told me he's been stopped by police. And I'm also realizing that I never took the time to piece all those separate stories together and pursue them further. Since Obama's inauguration, I too often simply have covered race by going to a Martin Luther King Day service where everybody's saying we shall overcome. I wrote the second story. That story appeared in Digger this January on Martin Luther King Day just before Joe Biden's inauguration. It was headlined, The Often Untold Story of Growing Up Black in the Second Whitest State. When I cover race, I usually get one of two reactions. One is, you're a white reporter who's part of the white media, who's part of the white problem. The other is, what is the problem and why do you keep writing about this? That said, my story about Sherry's family was the most read on the website when it appeared. It generated only positive comment and was shared on Facebook more than 3,000 times. It made a lot of people think differently. And I think the reason why is it made me think differently. Here for me is the big takeaway. This is the quote from Rowan that I used to conclude the story. Quote, white people can say how much they believe in Black Lives Matter but you don't understand it until you're treated the same way. You have to take a step back and just listen. That's Kevin O'Connor. His story about the Providence family was published on VT Digger for Martin Luther King Day this year. It's called The Often Untold Story of Growing Up Black in the Second Whitest State. Thanks to everyone who attended Local Lives last week. And thanks again to Back Pocket Media and our sponsor, Vermont Club. You can sign up for our mailing list at vtdigger.org to get the scoop on our next live events, which might actually happen live in person later this year. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We use music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. See you then.